hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. It's awesome for us to see that we have a whole bunch of new listeners and that's really incredible. Please tell all your writer friends about us. The more listeners we have, the more downloads we have, which means there's more that we can do for you. And we're constantly trying to broaden our platform to see how much value we can add and more listeners can only help us. Now, for those of you who are new listeners, please listen to a few books with hooks. That's the segment in which Carly and Cece, who are both literary agents, will read and review query letters and opening pages with the intention to help you polish it up to the point where you can submit those to your dream agent and have them request the full. So listen to a few of these segments to see how they like the query letter to be structured before you submit yours to the podcast for us to take a look at on Books with Hooks because we're seeing some new submissions that are coming through that don't really have the query letter, that are just the pages, etc. We love that you're super excited and want to get feedback, but it will be in your best interest to see how best to do that in a way that you're most likely to get chosen for the show. Then remember, after Books with Hooks, we have a segment in which 
I usually interview authors. We don't talk about book club kind of things. We discuss elements of craft and practical advice for you in terms of how you can elevate your writing and apply whatever they're doing in your own manuscript. So that's for all of our new listeners. Carly, will you just do our disclaimer, please? Hello, everybody. This is a reminder that this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes now on Substack for the fulsome picture. There are tons of ways that you can also support us on the podcast. You can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, tell your writing friends about us. We'd love to help as many writers as possible. And again, follow us on Substack, get our stacked newsletter on a weekly basis, bonus videos, articles, essays, advice, and more. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Yeah, I saw somebody yesterday announced that they had won a January giveaway, which was a full manuscript evaluation. And somebody wrote, I didn't even know that that was possible. And I replied, well, you clearly are listening to the podcast because we mention it on the podcast, we mention it in our Substack, and we mention it in our socials. So that's why it's so important to listen. Right, we're super excited today because we have an emerging author who's joining us on the show to discuss her query. And those of you who are long-time listeners know how we geek out and how excited we get to have the author join us. So Sarah, thank you so much for submitting and for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on. I'm so honored, honestly. I've learned so much from the podcast, so it's a great chance to feel like I'm contributing to this community. Yeah, it takes great bravery to submit to this, and every time you do, you are 100% contributing towards everybody else's education at the same time. So Sarah, can you kick us off by reading us your query letter? Dear Carly, given your interest in women's fiction and coming-of-age stories for an adult audience, you are an ideal agent for my debut novel, Redacted. Redacted is a dual POV, 90K word coming-of-age romance that balances the literary and commercial, making it perfect for fans of Sally Rooney. In its consideration of how grief and shame affect intimacy, Redacted resembles Writers and Lovers by Lily King. And in its concern with how flawed characters deal with uncertainty and the fear of regret, Redacted evokes the 2021 film Worst Person in the World. Around their friends, Roman and Clara pretend to be unaffected by each other. Roman, a go-with-the-flow glassblower, is, after all, not well-matched to the structured and goal-oriented Clara with her lofty scientific ambitions. What they won't admit, even to themselves, is that their first meeting and almost hookup created a mutual fascination that neither can shake, even when their focus should be elsewhere. When Clara, an aspiring botanist fresh out of college, lands an internship at a prestigious Boston lab investigating the possibility of photosynthetic batteries, she believes that she'll finally be able to achieve what her mother could not. Scientific acclaim, wide-ranging travel, and better yet, wide-ranging memories. Clara soon discovers, however, that the realities of scientific academia, its tedium, its rigor, its cutthroat nature, clash with her expectations. Clara faces a dilemma. Persist in her goals despite her unhappiness or embrace an uncertain and unstructured future. Roman is content to live in the moment until his uncle offers to sell him the family glass studio. To prevent the studio from going to someone else, Roman must grapple with his fear of failing his uncle, the studio's glass blowers, and his father's legacy as he struggles to learn the ropes of an unpredictable business. Over a summer in which they are kept in proximity by their friend's relationship, Roman's and Clara's connection deepens despite their divergent views for the future. In subsequent years, as Roman's ties to Boston grow and Clara's need to achieve what her mother could not intensifies, they must each decide who they are, what they want, and ultimately whether they want to be together. When I'm not busy querying databases as a data scientist, I am hard at work on my second novel. I live with my fiance, also a data scientist, because apparently that's what we're into. 
in Brooklyn, where I enjoy wandering the neighborhood, doing yoga, and shopping at the many local bookstores that I'm lucky to have nearby. I've attached the first five pages below and would love to send you my full manuscript if you are interested. Best, Sarah. Note, the first chapter starts in September. The second chapter starts in May, four months earlier. And the word count there is 456. Wonderful, Sarah. Thank you. Okay, Cece, I'm going to hand it across to you first. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I agree with Bianca. It takes a lot of bravery and we're so grateful. I had not seen, well, I still haven't seen Worst Person in the World, but I looked it up and you know saw what it was all about. I wonder if it's mainstream enough to be used as a comm. So that's a question I guess I have for everyone else here. Does everyone else know this movie? If so, it's a CC thing. So leave it. If not, I don't know. One thing that came to mind, one title that came to mind was Normal People. And maybe it's because you mentioned Sally Rooney. Maybe it's because your first line is about Roman and Clara pretend to be unaffected by each other. And that's exactly the situation with the protagonists and normal people at the start of the novel. So I was like, why isn't she using normal people as a comp? I don't know if it's because you think the book is too big or something like that, but I definitely got normal people vibes is what I'm saying. And I'm really curious to hear from you how the story unfolds in terms of their chemistry and the tension between them to see if that would be an adequate comp. I also wondered, and again, this might be because my brain was focused on comparing this to normal people, but I wondered about their ages. You know, when we have that line around their friends, Roman and Clara pretend to be unaffected. And at the very end, we have the line about how this kind of moves through time a little bit. So I didn't know how old they would be when they met. And if you look at the pitch copy for normal people, it's very clear in like high school and then a few years later, college. So I think that it might make sense for you to clarify their ages as we see them in the book. Because I, again, was thinking high school, but then later I was like, hmm, no, okay, it can't be high school because she's a botanist fresh out of college. So I was just curious about that. All these things, by the way, are curiosity. You know, overall, I will say that the query letter, for me, it read like a quiet novel. Not a bad thing. I enjoy quiet novels. But you are saying that it is commercial and literary. And so for all of the major dramatic questions, I kept thinking, can we personify this in some way? Can we make the antagonistic force? Can we personify the antagonistic force? Clara soon discovers, however, that the realities of scientific academia, its tedium, its rigor, its cutthroat nature, clash with her expectations. And I'm like, okay, it doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like I have a villain as a person. Same with, with Roman. You know, Roman has to grapple with his fear of failing. And when we're, we get the line about them together, their need to achieve what her mother could not, her need to achieve. And, you know, his ties to Boston are growing and who they are, what they want. And I'll be honest, I know a lot of pitch copy from actual books that sound exactly like this. So it's not that it's a problem because a lot of books are exactly like that. They're character driven, they're internal. But again, your opening paragraph mentioned commercial. So that, I guess, threw me off a little bit. And I am just wondering if there is enough plot to add something that's a bit more personified. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I do want to say this so that you have context for all my notes. While I do have notes in your query letter, as you can see, and while I think that many of my points make sense and are logical and valid, because of course I'm saying it, so of course I feel that way, once I started reading your pages, I started freaking out about how good they are. So this is very much a situation where the query letter is good, like this is a good query letter, but your pages, Sarah, your pages are out of this world fantastic. So don't want to get ahead of myself. I will stop talking now. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Always wonderful for an author to hear that. But of course, you want the query letter to be living up to the pages, right? So before we go to Sarah, Carly, what were your thoughts? 
All right. So I agree with everything Cece said. And I love that idea of what she was saying about like how to personify whatever that like external villain type of force is. I think that's going to be really key here. It's really, to me, it's always just as simple as the hook, right? What is the hook? And I think with these two, it seems so just like human and natural the way that you've presented this, which is like amazing because with, you know, really honest fiction, we want this like mirror image to our life in a way that is accessible, but also like beautiful. And and so I really got those types of like atmospheric contemporary vibes from this. But what I really struggled with was what is keeping these people apart from like a fictional plot set. And when you said literary and commercial, what I was gathering from when you said that was literary in terms of the writing, commercial and the fact that it's a love story. That's what I'm thinking you think is what is commercial about it. And so you're trying to figure out how to convey that in a way that, you know, again, brings some oomph to, to this kind of opening paragraph. So to me, that's where the normal people comp is going to just be the most useful. Because even though it's a pretty big book, and obviously it is one of those comps that we sometimes guard against, but when it's honest and it's true and it's the best comp for you, it makes sense. And so I think this was probably, you might have, again, just opted out from that. But I think to me, that's just a natural, normal, you know, what, what you would want is the comp. And I would just strike through the worst person in the world. Not again, because it's not useful, just because it could be something you want to use later in terms of like marketing. Who's the audience for this book? Oh, people that watch this movie, as opposed to how can we actually use this as a comp in a way that literary agents and editors can use that as a tool and a frame of reference from like selling the book point of view. So that was kind of my idea around the framing of the story. And, and again, we never on this show ever like to try to like pretend your book is something it's not. So we try to poke an angle and like steer you towards some of these thoughts about what is this driving force that is keeping them apart. Is it that the professor that we meet, you know, in the opening pages is a bit of a quote unquote villain character. He seems kind of like that. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but like, is he the thing that's keeping them apart? Is it, you know, that like career ambition versus going for love? And again, I don't want to like oversimplify this because I think it's a really atmospherical, contemporary, beautiful novel. Again, don't want to make it something it's not, but I just really want to make sure that we are we just are giving the best opportunity to have a hook, even in a quiet novel. And so I always worry with quiet pitches that, again, it's not the pages that are going to be the problem. It's the query letter, the expectations that the query letter sets out for the agent. And the expectation here is that I'm going to read a quiet novel. And again, if I'm prepared for that and I know that and I'm going into it like that, that's fine. But then say I fall in love with this book and I'm like, now I got to figure out how to sell this book. And then my brain turns on to be like, okay, now I got to get these wheels in motion to figure out the selling points. And how am I going to convey to an editor that this is different than all the other quiet novels out there? This is the most beautiful quiet novel you've read this year. Like I got to be able to say, you know, and that's what I'm just trying to figure out. What are these antagonistic forces and, and all these things that Cece was saying? So that's kind of where I'll end. Thank you, Carly. Sarah, we're going to hand over to you now. But I was wondering, in terms of personifying the antagonistic forces, are they human villains in academia? Someone who's working against her, who's making her life difficult. Is there somebody perhaps who's challenging Roman's right to take over the business and who's like, you can't cut this, so I'm going to step in and take over the business? Are there these kinds of characters that you're perhaps just not mentioning that'll certainly make it easier for you to position who they are? Here we go. We're handing over to you and you can answer our questions and ask questions of your own. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for the feedback. Very, very helpful. I did shy away from normal people as a comp, both because it's a huge novel, but also 
I was wondering if it was like too old too, but maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And then in terms of the hook that I think is like, Carly, I think you're spot on. Like I'm trying to tease the romance element of it as being more commercial as to characters in the book who personify antagonistic forces. I do, especially for Roman, there's like a clear person who's an antagonistic force, but he is more prominent in the first half of the novel, which brings me to like a broader question with what I've been struggling with this query. I don't know to what extent I need to talk about the structure of the novel if, and Cece touched on this with like the ages of people as the novel progresses, but the first half of the novel is like over the course of a summer and the second half of the novel progresses over years. And that is just something I'm having a hard time communicating and I'm not sure whether or not I need to communicate it. I'll stop there. I feel like I probably missed some of your questions. Can I ask in terms of when you say the first part and the second part, is it clearly delineated as part one, part two? Or are you just sort of talking broadly like the first 40% is this and the next 60% is that? It's like divided, yeah. Okay. Carly, Cece? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, I always, always come back to this idea of like the job of the query letter is to hook the agent, you know? And so, and it's already getting kind of long, the pitch, right? And so that's why it's tricky. What I usually find most helpful you know, when we're thinking about communicating structure, I often with love stories, sometimes quiet love stories, I often really like to use the comp one day. And I know it's not super new or anything like that. And it follows a very specific structure. And, and you know, if you've seen the movie or, or read the book, right, it's like every chapter is, is moving along to the next year. So if you can find a comp that communicates that structure, that could be a backdoor way, you know what I mean, of trying to kind of communicate that. I think like the note that I wrote at the bottom here, when you say like in subsequent years, it it seems like most of the pitch was the setup. And then you have these three lines, like in subsequent years. So you're saying half the book is equal to three and a half paragraphs. Half the book is equal to three lines, which again, makes sense in, you know, jacket copy or, you know, if this was a trailer for a movie or something like that. I think what you're going to need is a really great synopsis to kind of do the job of communicating a lot of this type of work. What I would really be focusing on for the query letter, again, is how do I do the job of hooking an agent? You know, and again, then you'll have the synopsis to explain things like the structure and what's actually going to happen. So I would really be focused on hooking the agent, nailing that hook, probably condensing some of that three and a half. And you'll, you'll see in my notes here, you know, I have some question marks around like where we need that third paragraph, the around their friends. Like I almost wonder if we need to start with Clara because I think your hook, you spend a lot of time in the hook paragraph saying like grief, shame, intimacy, characters, uncertainty, regret. Those sound like a lot of themes to me and you know how I feel about themes. Whereas like if you took that space and you were able to kind of, again, weave in some of those antagonistic forces and what's keeping them apart. And I think also when writers who are literary write love stories, they sometimes want to really differentiate between like the poppy genre romance and how what they are writing is this more like sweeping literary experience of love. And so I felt like you were trying to hammer that home when really, yeah, we could, we could maybe lean into, again, those antagonistic forces in that paragraph. And then you can save some word count there. And then you could add in a little bit more at the bottom to kind of build out what the second half of the book is. Cece, was anything you wanted to add there? Just to build off that, you might want to try making it two paragraphs and then having the first paragraph start as... Over the course of a summer, fresh out of college, Roman and Clara insert all the 
good plot stuff that we need. And then the second paragraph can be throughout the next, I don't know how many years we're talking about, let's just say six. Throughout the next six years, and then like whatever collisions or near collisions happen, that could be a way to do it just structurally. And that's fine. I will say that it would not bother me if that information were not in the query letter, the structural part of your novel. Just because, again, there's only so much you can add in the query letter. You know, it can't be too long. Like, it is not your job to share all of the information. Like, I would care much more about the protagonists, obstacles, stakes, the curiosity. Like, that to me is more important. So if you want to include that structure, no problem at all. But, like, I wouldn't stress too much about it, to be perfectly honest. Other than clarifying their ages, because I worry that someone else will have the same thing I did, which is, oh, normal people, we're talking high school. Other than that, and that can be clarified by you just bringing up the college line, right? Because I know what college age people are. But yeah. Any other questions there, Sarah? One other question is with the romance plot, I want to put forward some of those antagonistic forces and like what keeps them apart. But my main concern is like revealing some of the like juiciness that I'd rather keep in the novel itself. So like I'm struggling with, I don't know if this is exactly a question, but to what extent can I like reveal some of these pivotal plot beats in the query letter without it actually diminishing the impact? The rule of thumb is if it happens before the climax, it's fair to share. It depends on each novel. It's going to depend on your vision. You get to do it differently because it's your book. But in general, if it happens before the climax, it's fine. We also need to see plot twists. We need to see if it is in fact commercial to an extent we agents need to see that you can weave in a plot that has twists. I am saying this as a compliment. Please know that I mean this as a compliment. If you did not include your pages with your query letter, I would be like, oh, okay, a good query letter. Good, you know? But again, your pages are so fantastic, like so well-written. Like the query letter is, is boring compared to the pages. Anything is boring compared to these pages. You are not doing yourself any favors by this because not all agents scroll down and read the pages there are agents who stop at the query letter and if the query letter it doesn't make them feel incredibly curious they stop and like i want you to have all of the eyes on this you know i think you're just making a classic rookie assumption which is like i'm gonna leave these breadcrumbs and all of these little tiny tiny breadcrumbs are gonna lead to this big feast in my novel and it's like we get, we're not going to get to the feast, you know? And it's like, we want everybody to get to the feast, right? But like, there's just so much that has to happen to plant, to get the agent to request the pages and to even read past the first line. You know what I'm trying to say? And so I think you're doing a huge disservice by not adding some more of those juicy details. The other thing I always want to remind people is that I'm forgetful, right? Like I might read a query letter and be like, oh, this sounds so good. And then by the time I go to read the pages, you could have left all these juicy details in the query letter. And then I go to read the pages and it, like, I'm like surprised all over again, right? Because I just, I get pitched all the time. I have clients, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm consuming so much content that I forget things between requesting the query or you know, reading the query, requesting the pages, actually going then to read those, those pages. I forget a lot, you know, and I'm like, oh, I requested a great book and I trust my taste and I trust my instincts, but you don't have to worry. It's like, oh, I told Carly the red herring in the query letter. And then she's going to immediately know that this was the thing that led to this, right? Because you're just an overthinker and you're a writer and that's fine. So just, yeah, don't be hiding things. Don't be hiding things. Before we go to what's in the pages, I have a question for Carly and Cece. When it comes to comping normal people, when I see that comp, I'm expecting the intense kind of sex stuff that came with normal people. I laugh every time I think of one of my besties, Kevin, bought normal people and sent it to his grandmother in South Africa. She's in her 80s. He hadn't read it yet. He just sort of was the book that everyone was reading. And when he asked her afterwards how it was, she was like, well, 
know, it was fine. I don't understand why people had to keep strangling each other while having sex, but maybe that's now what you young people are doing. So, you know, is that a fair assumption that some people are going to think that, or is there a way to say normal people without the intense sex? What do you guys think? I think we have to ask Sarah how steamy your book is. <laughs> yeah, Sarah, how steamy? Gosh, not zero steamy, but there's no strangulation. Okay, so on the page, sex is what we're Yeah, saying. yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in terms of just like big comps, always got to talk carefully around them. And I think, you know, Yonka's right for raising that uh, great anecdote, especially about things that are pivotal to a novel. Because we always think about when we're comping to something, what are we comping to? Is it the romance? Is it the sex? Is it the tone? Is it the voice? Do you know what I'm trying to say? So as long as you're encompassing most of the novel, I think you're good Awesome. Okay, now we're going to ask Sarah just to give us an overview of what's in the opening pages, and then we'll ask Carly to start the critique of that. Okay, so it starts in September. It opens with Clara in a lab. It's raining and she's preparing to leave. On her way out the door, she is stopped by the PI, Dr. Shaw, who has a brief conversation with her, where he sort of hints at owing her an answer for something but they don't go into it. Then she heads out of the lab because she is going to meet her friend Nisha for dinner. She meets Nisha at a Thai restaurant where they have a brief conversation and start talking about Nisha's current dating life. Great, Sarah. Thank you. Kali? All right. I will definitely say the coming of age feelings here definitely brought me back in a really good way. I know CC already alluded to the fact that these pages are incredible. First, I'll start with like the big picture and then I'll kind of get into the smaller things, which I've talked about on the podcast before. But my husband did a master's in genetics and he spent many, 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 many years in a lab. And so when I was reading this, I was picturing his lab, picturing him saying goodbye to the professor. They're all working every day and like, you know, they're always looking. It's like, who's leaving? Who's not leaving? Who's spending, you know, seven days a week in the lab? And anyway, so it really brought me back to his time in the lab. I wasn't even the one doing the science and I can like viscerally imagine that. So it really, I think what's so beautiful about these pages is they're specific enough that like I can totally just picture everything, but they were so visceral that it brought me back to that time. Like I can imagine Mike's lab, you know what I'm trying to say? So it was like so well done that one thing that editors always say is they want to be reminded that they're not reading a book. I got a pass recently from an editor who was like, I felt like I was reading a book the whole time. And I think what you did really beautifully here was that I didn't feel like I was reading a book. And that's always the actual compliment because the most beautiful experience you can have as a reader is when you get swept up into that like otherworldly experience. Like you forget that you are reading, you know, reading a piece of paper. Obviously I was reading on the screen. Like we get swept into that thing of there's a play happening in my head. And for everybody's like neurological thing, this happens differently depending on your brain. But, and I felt like I was watching memories. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like that's how beautiful I felt like the writing was and the atmosphere and like the science and the coming of age and so I really felt like it was beautiful I mean the first line was now when it rained Clara no longer saw water she saw instead an abundant source of electrons trapped and it's this idea that we all have this human experience of like experiencing rain but her unique experience in the world is like that rain I know as a scientist like that's something other than rain and when the coming of age novels I think the best coming of age novels they bring us down to this level of like life that we've all experienced and yet they add this layer on of human awareness in a way that 
is so important and honest and true. And I think that's why these pages are so special is that what you were able to kind of accomplish through that balance of like the young, also that like young adult mindset you said, you know, it happened to them too. work snaking its way into every normal thought rooting deep. Perhaps that was the cost of all of this. That, um, that was all right. There were worse things Claire knew with which her mind could occupy herself. Right. It's this idea of like as humans, we all know we're like going through this human experience of life, but then we cognitively know that other people are having a different experience in life. And that's, I think, what makes this literary fiction. And so in your query, when you call this literary meets commercial, I'm like, this is not commercial. It's definitely literary. So I think you need to lean on that. And, and the promise of the romance to come, I think, is so exciting because I think the best fiction is about our humanity and all of the different facets of our humanity, whether it's, you know, our work or our coming of age and, and love and romance is just a huge part of our human experience. And so that's what I feel like is really honest and true and really beautiful about what you've created here. You know, I feel like her observations are just so smart, but all this to say, like, this is one of those things where like, I have no idea if you're starting the book in the right place, you know, because I haven't read the rest of the pages, don't know where the book is going. You know, should we start with a moment where they actually interact? Like, you know, I, I have a lot of questions in terms of whether all of this at the end of the day is the book and this version that's going to make it to publication because I, I can't see the future and I haven't read the rest of your book. But I can absolutely, without a doubt, say like, this is one of the best things we've read on the show in so long, like since I can remember, to be to be perfectly frank. Hot praise indeed, Carly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Okay, Cece, and then we'll, we'll hand across to Sarah. Listen, Sarah, I don't know what to tell you. It was very frustrating to me to get to the end of your pages and not be able to read more. I was in a terrible mood. I was seriously very upset. I told Bianca and Carly this last night because we met for deep dive. So I was like, tomorrow's pages are really good. I'm very upset. I can't read more. Like if I had your entire manuscript, I would have read a huge chunk of it last night because I couldn't sleep anyway. It is very good. Like you are an incredibly talented writer. You have a gift. Do not say this very often. I am incredibly picky human. This is amazing. Like amazing, amazing, amazing. I I could spend 30 minutes just complimenting you with specific details of all the amazing things. I know this is an educational podcast. I know my job is to give you notes. And so I'm going to focus on that. But please know that every single thing I'm about to say comes with the caveat of, this is amazing. This is great. I wish I could have kept on reading. Like it's truly like masterful. One, very small note. I would isolate the first two lines. They're so good. And just for readability, it just really helps to have a very short opener. Silly thing would go a long way. I isolated them for you. Substack subscribers will be able to see it. Two, okay, so back to normal people. Yes, the steaminess of that book is what made a lot of people pick it up. I know so many people who were like, oh, there's sex in this book. Let's read it. And I'm sure that helped it be mainstream. But in my opinion, what draws people to that kind of Sally Rooney writing is the psychological acuity. They might not know that's what's drawing them and keeping them, but it is. Like, it's the fact that she goes deep into your brain, right? And you have opportunities to do that here even more. It's not that you're not doing it. Again, like I said, all the compliments. But here is an example. She's talking to Dr. Shaw. Yes, sorry. She felt a continuous urge to apologize to Dr. Shaw whenever he spoke to her. I love this detail. Can you elevate it even further by adding emotion? For example, this tendency she has, this continuous urge, does it annoy her? Does it upset her? Has she noticed that other women in the lab do it too? Or maybe she's the only woman and the only one doing it. Has it ever come up with someone else in her life? Is it the same urge that she has with whomever it is? 
Is it the first time in her life that she's been having these urges? Has it only been happening since she has been in limbo about the job? Like, I just wanted more psychological acuity, is what I'm saying. Another example, they're talking, right? And the dialogue is really sparse, which I like because not everyone can pull off sparse dialogue. He tells her she'd be proud of you. And then you have all these action beats. He uncrossed his arms and tugged at one of his shirt cuffs. You know that, of course. Your next line is excellent interiority. Clara was used to this sort of comment. I love knowing where things are, typical or surprising. That's really important socio-emotional framework for a story. All the great books have it. Once you start looking for it, you can't unsee it. However, to make it even better, a line of visceral emotion first, before the line of interiority. She's used to this sort of comment, right? How does it land in her body? Like, is it one of those comments where, like, right now she can't hear it or she'll break down in tears? Or maybe it's one of those comments that she used to crave because she spent her whole life craving to hear it. And now that it's happening, now it doesn't taste as good. Now it's bitter. And now it doesn't taste as good in her mouth. I don't know. I'm not going to guess right, you know? But I am asking questions to hopefully prompt you to let us in even more inside her head, inside her heart, inside her soul, inside her body, inside everything, right? Like I just want to know more and more of this person. And I want that deep psychological insight. Substack subscribers will be able to see various notes and not just with compliments. I have questions and stuff like that. But truly, I, as I was critiquing this, I felt like I was reading a client manuscript in the following sense. When I read my clients' manuscripts, because I already love their writing and because we already like, I'm already down to like represent the book anyway, my notes aren't so much of, you know, this is stuff you need to improve. It's more like these are things I'm thinking, these are questions I'm asking myself as I read the book. These are thoughts that your protagonists are sparking in my mind. And so it's really more of like a dance that we do together. It's really me sharing my brain as I read your book in the hopes of you understanding what the reader's thinking so that you can anticipate that and you can add curiosity seeds if that's your goal. You can add more layers of emotion if that's your goal. But it truly is excellent. And I mean, obviously, if you are interested, there is no pressure. I noticed the query letter is addressed to Carly, so truly no pressure. But if you want to send this to me, I would love to read more because it's really, really very good. Thank you, Cece. Okay, we're going to hand over to Sarah now. Wow. Um, <laughs> thank you both so much. That is, I mean, like, it's just incredible to hear processing. Yeah, I definitely feel, you see some of your comments on the emotionality, that's like a, I don't know, a lever I've been sort of pulling more and less of in these opening pages. And this, I mean, this is like my, I don't know, fifth attempt at opening the novel. So I am also not 100% sure that this is where it will begin because it's sort of setting up like a mini frame for the opening of the first half. But yeah, I mean, thank you very much. That's really incredible. I, yeah, I'm still processing, so I don't have like an immediate question. Perfect. No, that's fine, Sarah. That's absolutely fine. So we love studying people into yeah. silence. It doesn't happen that often. So that's awesome. Right. So thank you so much to Sarah for submitting her work. For those of you who would like to submit your work, go to the shit about writing, go to the books with hooks tab. There is a form there for you to submit. We are changing things in that once you submit, you need to listen to the podcast to see if your query has been selected. The admin work is just becoming huge and we just aren't able to keep everybody up to speed as we were in the past. So submit your query and then listen to the podcast to see if it's going to be discussed and you'll be learning a ton in the future. Carly and Cece, thank you so much as always for your thoughtful critique. Let's go to today's guest. 
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.
Today's guest is the author of two previous novels, River Woman and Tea by the Sea, which won the Lignum Vitae Una Marsen Award. Her short fiction and essays have appeared in Electric Literature, Ms. Magazine, and Crab Orchard Review, among others. She is the owner of DC Writers Room, a co-working studio for writers based in Washington, DC. Born in Jamaica, she lives in Maryland. It's my pleasure to welcome Donna Hemmons. Donna, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bianca. It is so wonderful to have you. Before we dive into discussion of this amazing book, can you tell us a bit more about the DC Writers Room? Um, Certainly. It's a co-working studio for writers and uh, members pay to have access to the studio 24-7. You know, it's just a quiet place. And I certainly, I get a lot of work done when I'm there because I don't have the distractions that I normally have at home. And so it's, you know, primarily that's why writers come there. That sounds like a great idea because something that so many of our listeners struggle with is prioritizing their writing and saying, I take this seriously. This is an important thing for me. Therefore, I'm going to carve out time. I'm going to carve out space for myself and give myself optimal conditions in which to write, which isn't always at home, unfortunately especially for women and especially if you have young children. And the fact that you make it open 24-7 is amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's one of those things where when you're at home, there is always something, whether it's dishes in the sink or if you, you know, watch a certain program on television, there's just always something, some kind of a distraction. And what I think having a professional space that you can go to really means is that you're putting the time in, you're dedicating yourself to this craft, and you're giving yourself the space and the time. So I think it's just, it's helpful to have something like that. And for some people, it might be a room, you know, a library, or it might be, you know, if you work well in a coffee shop, it might be taking the time or just simply saying at these specific hours of the day, if I'm able, this is when I'm going to write. This is where I'm going to write. And I think having that routine helps a lot because it it puts you in that mindset to just simply work on this particular project or this particular piece of of your life, which is, you know, writing. So is it a case of they book the time and then they show up for it or they can show up whenever they want? Because something that a lot of emerging writers feel that they need to wait for is for the muse to arrive, right? And what we know is the muse shows up when we show up. So, you know, I've kind of trained myself, there's writing slot times, and I'm like, whether it's three to five, that's the time I have to write that day. And when I sit down, the muse better show up because I ain't got time to mess around. Right, absolutely. Writers just show up whenever they want. If it's midnight, if that's the time that you work best, then, you know, you certainly have access. And yeah, I think we operate in such a way that it allows you to come in when the time is right for you. And there's, you know, certainly no restrictions. If you work for an hour, that's good for you. If you work for five hours or 10 hours or, you know, like until you can't sit up anymore, that, you know, it certainly is up to you. But I think it's just simply important, yes, to carve out the time and to give yourself the time and to actually sit in a place where you can get it done, wherever that is. I'm very jealous of all the writers who are in D.C. who can have this amazing space. And for anyone listening out there, please start many other places like this 
all over the world so the rest of us have access to this. So Donna, what I want to discuss before we discuss the book is journey to publication. So from when you decided you were going to write a book, how you got the agent to getting to this point, because every journey to publication is so incredibly different. And you know, people tend to think there's like a trajectory. There's one way to do it. And if I don't hit all of these mileposts or these goalposts at a certain point, then it's not going to happen for me. And certainly you've changed publishers. I don't know if you've changed agents along the way, but we'd really love to hear what the journey looked like for you. Certainly, yes. So I have had three different publishers and I think at this point, three agents. And my journey is, yes, probably a little bit different from the one that some other people will describe. I, my first novel, River Woman, I started writing as my thesis when I you know, went to grad school. And actually, I started writing it before I applied to grad school. And it's, you know, I had a portion of it and I knew I was working as a journalist at that time. And I knew that I didn't know how really to structure a novel. And I applied for a creative writing program, got into a couple, chose the program at American University and wrote River Woman as my thesis. So once I was done with that novel and, uh, and I had graduated and I had something that I thought felt like it was ready, I started looking for an agent and that agent sold that novel, I would say, um, somewhat quickly within the first round. And then that book was published in 2002. So that part of the process for me, you know, like after I heard a lot of stories from other writers, I realized that that process was probably not the same that a lot of writers had. And, you know, I think for me, a large part of it was that I had a solid idea when I went into a creative writing program and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I think that helped my journey a little bit. So that first book was published initially by Washington Square Press, which had been an imprint of Simon & Schuster. I don't know what it is anymore. Um, But yeah, that book was in, published in 2002. And uh, I started working on my second novel almost immediately. It took some time for me to actually get to a point where I felt that I truly believed in that book or got it to a point where it was really ready to get out. That book, second book that I started writing, I have not yet published. I am now, only now getting back to revising it in a way that I think works. The third book I started writing actually is The House of Plain Truth. The House of Plain Truth is a third book I will publish. It's a third book I started writing, but I also started writing another book after that, The Tea by the Sea, which was published second. So the books, the writing of the books, then the publication of the books is a little bit out of order. And, and that really just stems from the fact that I spent a lot of time working on these books to get them to the place where I truly believe they were ready to be published. And that, I think, is one of the things that, you know, like as writers, you if you have published one book, you get questions after question after question. When is the next book coming? And you might feel this pressure to just actually publish something to you know, I stop all of those questions. But I think for me, it was really important to take the time to make sure that I was telling the story that I wanted to tell and not just publishing for the sake of publishing. There's a few things there that I'd like to unpack. So I love that there were books that you worked on 
that you set them aside and that you came back to them because for a lot of writers, they feel like, oh, I've spent so much time on this and now I've moved on from it and that was a complete waste. And we always say nothing's a waste because you're a better writer by the time you finished writing that book than when you were when you began. But it is awesome to hear of writers who do come back to books that they worked on previously because I firmly believe that there are ideas that we might have that we just won't do justice to at certain points of our writing journeys. Sometimes a book is just so big and, you know, what we want to say is just so big that at that particular point, we're just not good enough writers to do it, which means that coming back to it later is maybe a good thing when when we've developed our craft more, or maybe it's just too emotional to write at that particular time. So for example, The House of Plain Truth, you know, on the flap copy, it says it's based on your family's kind of history etc so for you was it a case of it was just too difficult to write at that point or was it a case of you needed to develop as a writer to come back to it or was there another reason entirely I think largely I needed to develop as a writer and I needed to develop as a person when I started writing the book I was telling the story through the perspective of an 18 year old and she was relaying an older woman's story And this 18-year-old had not lived. She had no life. She had no story of her own and no real stakes in this story that she was telling about this older woman. And so it took some time for me to get to a point where I realized that I was telling the story through the wrong person and that actually allowing this older woman, Perline, to tell her own story, giving her agency was the right way to go. And there is no amount of, you know, information that I could have got from other readers that would have helped me to get to that point. And I think I just needed to get there on my own to really see that it was not the plot of the story that was the issue. It was the person I was using to tell that story. And I think a lot of that really just stemmed from from growing older, just getting to a different point in my life where I could see things differently and I could tell a different story. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's incredibly important. And, you know, just on there... Sometimes we, when we get an idea, we become dogged about it. It's like, this has to be the narrator. This is the narrator. And when things aren't falling into place, we're like, I'm going to just bend them into place and I'm going to panel beat them because this has to be the narrator. And it's so incredible when, whether it's a month later, whether it's two years later, when we finally have this aha moment where we go, why was I so obsessed with making this person the narrator when they were never the right person to tell the story? So for you, what did that process look like that you were finally able to say, this is not the right person? Was it just because you were younger when you were writing it and therefore you wanted the narrator to be younger? Or was it like a complete shift for you? I think a part of it is that, you know, I was younger and I think I was still at that place where I was looking back at things that had happened and looking at it as from my perspective. And I think I got to a point where I realized that this wasn't just about how I see the world, but about how the character sees the world. And so the real part of it, though, was that I, the final revision of this book began around 2016. And, you know, we know what that political atmosphere was like. And so one of the things that, you know, I kept saying and thinking about was, you know, what is it for me? Am I moving? You know, like after, you know, if we get a certain result, am I moving? Where am I going? And I found myself writing about a woman who just packed up, gave up everything and moved back to Jamaica. 
And once I started writing that, I realized that this woman who I was writing about sounded a lot like the person who had been in this book in the House of Plain Truth, sounded a lot like Perlene. And so I finally heard her voice and found her voice. And once I was able to set that down, the story really just fell into place. And so a lot of it really was just finding that right person. I wasn't actively seeking her at that point. She really, I think, just rose up because there was so much else going on outside of the book in my life and just just generally that it helped me to be able to see a way into the story that I just wouldn't have found beforehand. Yeah, you know, that's that saying someone once gave me a box of darkness and it took me, you know, however long to realize that this too is a gift. So it is amazing how these kinds of dark periods in our lives, these kinds of, you know, moments of being in a crucible are actually catalysts to so many creative blockages, right? Because I don't, maybe you wouldn't have found Pauline if it hadn't have been for what was happening in 2016. Maybe she, she would never have come to you and you needed that time for, for her to come to you. Right. Well, she was always there. She was just silent. Somebody else was telling her story and she needed to find that place or that time, that that reason for her to tell her own story. And I think a lot of it just really came out of this idea that, you know, she just had to go back home and, and it worked. But, you know, I think in addition to that, another part of the whole business of rethinking, I think also came out of the book that I had written just before that, Tea by the Sea. And, you know, with Tea by the Sea, I had started, you know, like you said earlier about writers trying to keep themselves confined to whatever structure or idea that they started out with. And, you know, with that book, I had this grand idea that the story would take place over 24 hours. And that is what the way I structured the entire book, which basically meant that the story just kept looping back and we just never really moved forward in the story. And I sat down with an editor who was the one who pointed that out to me. And so I changed that entire structure from a book taking place over 24 hours to one taking place over 17 years. That really was a major shift for me. And I think, you know, I think up until that point, I had really been trying to stick to this one day structure. And I think once I got there and I was able to see and accept and open up and, and change what I had been tied to, I think that also helped release a little bit more that I could go back to the House of Plain Truth that I had been working on since, you know, like before Tea by the Sea, to really look at it in a, with a very different set of eyes and come to a book that was told much differently from the way I had initially set out to tell it. Yeah, I did the same with my debut, but I went the opposite way. So I was, my original versions spanned four decades and the final version spanned a year and three months. So it always fascinates me how we chain ourselves to these, these notions, but we're the ones chaining ourselves to them. No one said, Donna, and it has to be 24 hours. No one said to me, Bianca, it has to be four decades. But in our minds, it's like, that's the way it has to be. And so it's not working, it's not working, and we're doing everything we can to make it work. And it, it is just so liberating when we're able to be like, okay, you know what? It was a great idea. It's time to let that go. And I think books teach us how to write them. You know, and in the same way, I think when parents have babies, you look at this baby and you go, oh, wow, this baby is going to be an artist. This baby is going to be X, Y and Z. 
And boy, when that baby grows up, do they teach us, hell no, that's what you thought I was going to be. But it's been in my DNA all along. This is who I'm going to be. And they assert themselves. And I feel like books do the exact same thing to us. They teach us who they are. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, that's why the revision process is so important, because that is what you're seeing when you get to that point. You have a basic story or you start out with your first or second draft of a basic story. And it is not until you start going back and looking at it that you really see some of the threads in that story, know what to pull out, what to to expand on and to really fill out and fluff up that story. And a lot of that, at least for me, with the way that I write, I don't have any of that beforehand. A lot of that really just comes as the story itself develops and builds. And, you know, for me, it's just a, it's a large part of the process. You know, one of the things that I hear all the time, you know, writers will always ask is whether I outline. And I don't outline, partly because I like that part of the process where it really feels organic and it's coming to me as I'm writing. And, uh, you know, it has worked for me. Maybe at some point I will try outlining, but I like that whole process of discovering as I write. You and I are on the exact same team. I hate plotting. I hate outlining. It makes my life much harder as a writer because I tend to write myself into dead ends and then I'm like, oh, damn, I've got to really backtrack. But I agree with you in that. And yeah, our listeners are either like plotters, no pencils, but what works for you is the most important thing. I'm going to read the flat copy to our listeners shortly, and then I really want us to unpack how you approached the characterization of Perline. Such a fascinating character. And we've had listeners say, how do you really approach characterization? How do you pad a character, make them 360 feel like a real person as opposed to a puppet that you're moving through the story? And I want us to unpack how you did this with her. Just before we do that, something you said quite a bit earlier, and I know our listeners are going to be thinking about it, is the fact that you said you've had three agents along the way. Can you speak a bit about the process of how you decide who's the right agent for you and how you decide when it's not the right relationship anymore? Because so many of our listeners are so desperate to just get one agent. They're like, if I could just get one agent to represent me, I will be happy for all eternity and I will stay with them my whole life. But it is the single most relationship you will ever have as a writer because you will change publishers, you will change editors, but you need someone who really gets you and champions your work. So can you speak a bit about that process? Yeah, it's a difficult process. And I'm not sure that I even fully that I even have the right answers. Because I I think, you know, like you said, we will change editors. And sometimes that is out of our control. Sometimes too, even the agent process is out of our control. But I think it's really important to have somebody who fully understands and is able to champion your work. You know, in my case, my agent now happens to be Jamaican which means that she understands what I'm writing, understands the cultural significance of the work that I'm doing. And I think it helps a lot for her to be able to to champion what I'm doing because she fully understands why it matters. And I mean, that's not to say that your agent has to match your background fully. I think what really matters is that you find an agent who really represents the kind of book that you are publishing. I have had in the past, you know, an agent who, you know, I rejected my work that, you know, with really beautiful sentiments, but it was just not the right fit. I mean, if she does more commercial work, 
and I am writing very literary fiction, the editors that that editor is going to have access to is just not going to be the right fit for me. So I think that, you know, one of the things that I have done over the years is that when I get to that point where I know I need to find a new agent is that I start looking at the books that I love. And I look at who that writer thanks, you know, either in the acknowledgments or or I may look online to see who represents that author to see if that person is a good fit. If the writing is somewhat similar to mine, then I think that my books or my stories are the types of stories that that agent might be interested in. That usually is how I start. That doesn't necessarily mean that's where I end up. But at the very least, I start with that idea that there is some similarity in what I'm doing and the types of books that person represents. Yeah. And it's so important to share a vision with an agent, because if you have an agent who's trying to make your work something that it isn't, or who's stopping your growth as an author, or who's telling you to focus on this or that when what you want to be doing is writing something else, then that's never a good fit. Okay, so for our listeners, I'm just reading the flap copy for The House of Plain Truth. Middle-aged Pauline unexpectedly leaves Brooklyn to return to her childhood home in Jamaica, leaving behind her daughter and grandchildren. Her father, Rupert, is dying. But Pauline isn't prepared for Rupert's puzzling deathbed wish that she find the siblings she hasn't seen in 60 years or for the other family secrets that soon emerge. Moving through time and place from Cuba to Montego Bay and from Brooklyn to Havana, the House of Plain Truth delicately exposes one woman's reconciliation with the hidden truth about her family legacy. Inspired by the author's own family story, this exquisitely told novel explores the divided loyalties within a family, the true meaning of home, and the sacrifices one woman will make to get what she wants. Okay, so coming back to the characterization of Pauline, where did that start from, Donna? So once you'd given up on the 18-year-old narrator and you were like, okay, it's Pauline's story, this is where we need to go. How do you approach characterization? Do you sit with one of those worksheets and fill in all of her hobbies and her likes and her dislikes? Do you think about your own life? Do you think about the life of family members or friends? How is it that you approach characterization to the point where you feel like you know this character and you can trust them to take you wherever they need to go, especially since you aren't an outliner? Yes, I I don't do worksheets. I have never actually even seen one. But generally, I, I think of somebody that I know. And I think of some of the characteristics of that person, either some of the habits, you know, like if that person drinks tea, or if that person says something a certain way. And so some of those things, and it might be multiple people, it's, just, it's a combination of different habits and different things that I see in people that I know. And I start fleshing out and building that character from these little bits and pieces of people. And that really is what it is. I ask myself a lot of questions also. If somebody does something, I really ask, would either that person really do it? Would Perlene do this? Would Perlene make this decision? And if she made this decision or she makes a particular decision, what happens next? But a lot of that is also driven by people I know. And whether or not, and and just looking at and thinking about how, you know, like an older 60-something-year-old woman would really think and act. 
and a 60-something-year-old woman from a particular time period. Because a 60-something woman in 2024 would be doing something a little bit different from Perlene in 1993. But a lot of it for me really is just building on not taking people so that they can see themselves or, or think that that's the person I built the story on, but just taking characteristics and traits from individuals that I know. Yeah, I like to say that as authors, we literary magpies. We see sparkling bits of people's personalities and we steal it and we bring it back to our nest and we turn it into, into something else. So much of who a character is is based on what happened to them in the past, right? Because the past informs the present. Things that were done to us in our childhood will affect who we grow up to be as adults. Those wounds sometimes never heal. Sometimes, you know, we go full circle with things. The mistake that I see a lot of emerging authors make is that they focus too much on actually putting backstory down on the page to explain the genesis of why they feel this way, etc., as opposed to letting who that character is in the now speak to who they were in the past. What was the challenge there for you in terms of weighing up the past and the present, especially in this kind of story where the past is so incredibly important? Well, the biggest challenge for me was that a lot of the past that I wanted to put in the story happened either when Perlene was three years old or before she was born. And so it was a real challenge to try to tell the story about that time period, about her father's life in a way that made sense. And it was a challenge. And, you know, I think a part of it, too, is that in the revision process, so much of how I told the story changed. And, and I think that's one of the things, too, that, you know, like I just simply had to welcome, that there are different ways of telling a story. One of the ways that I had in an earlier draft was that her father, even though he was dead, you were still hearing from him as he was going through his experiences. And while I think it, it works very well in some kinds of stories, I think in this story, Perlene really needed to tell the entire thing. And we needed to see all of it through her perspective. So the challenge was trying to figure out how to do that. And I think I came up on something that, that works really well, that also blends in with the story. Because it's, it's a story about a woman who is looking back to the past and in some ways is also haunted by some of the events from the past. And so I, I think the technique that I ended up using, I think, blends the ideas to the actual structure of the story. Yeah, very much so. And for our listeners, you know, get the book so you can see that for yourself. I don't want to give too much away. But for our listeners who are going, oh, wow, that's interesting. How do you do that? How do you tell a backstory of a character when, you know, things that happened in the past that they weren't there to see? And, you know, there's lots of different ways to approach this. One, you can make it that they aren't the only POV character. So a character from the past is a POV character and you have multiple timelines. You can have that the character finds letters from the past or diary entries from the past. Or perhaps they have a grandmother who tells them stories from the past. So there are so many different ways to approach this. And as the author, you've got to look at your work and be like, okay, this is the way that's going to work for the story that I'm telling. Donna, we only have a minute left. One question I want to ask is, did Pauline ever surprise you by doing something that you were like, oh man, I did not see this coming? It's fine if she didn't. It just means you knew her really, really well. For me, I sometimes find that a character will just say or do something on the page that I 
I, I know it comes from my subconscious, but I was not expecting it. And then it takes the story in a in a different way. Yeah, I think some of it, there's a certain point in the book where she, let me backtrack a little bit. When she gives up her life and decides to go back to Jamaica, she, you know, like surprises her own daughter with this decision. So one of the things that she you know, ends up doing is regretting how she told her daughter and, you know, just some of the things that she has done. So one of the things that's surprising is that when she is already in Jamaica and a man calls the house and a young man shows up at the house who is somebody she has never known. And it turns out that her father had had another child and this young man who shows up is now is her nephew and he's looking for a place to stay. And she says, okay, yes, you can stay here. And it's really surprising to me. It was surprising to me that, one, she would have done something like that. But, you know, she did. And once I added it into the story, it started working because it gave her a reason to look at some of the things that she had done to her daughter or her relationship with her daughter and look at how, you know, she was living her life. Yeah. And and when a character surprises us that way, it deepens our understanding of them because we go, oh, wow, she did that. Why would she do that? That's interesting. And what does this tell me about the character? Which, of course, again, as the author, just helps you build them and build them into someone who's making their own choices rather than being a puppet that you're moving through, you know, this this narrative. Donna, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been wonderful chatting with you. We will link to the House of Plain Truth on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you get it there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast and you support Donna. Donna, we wish you much success with this book. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.